The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity, escape the boundaries of ordinary. Walking down Mass Ave in Boston's Back Bay and peering down a kind of nondescript street called Clearway Street, one comes across a little nondescript bodega. Looking in, you can't see inside the store at all. You just see in the window Brillo pads, Ajax, soap, Campbell's tomato soup, spam. But when you walk into the bodega, Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Apply Curiosity Lab Radio, Episode 8. I'm your host, Becky Saltzman, and today we're going to be taking a curious peek into a world that combines fashion and music and art, cross-pollination, collaboration, and we're going to be talking with Oliver Mack. Oliver is one of the three founding members of a most unusual and highly successful retail store, called Bodega. Okay, why is it unusual? Because Bodega doesn't do any advertising, it has no storefront, and you really don't even quite know how to access the store unless you experience it and discover it for yourself. It is on a little quiet street in Boston. There's no sign. There's a sign holder that actually holds no sign, and you look inside the store from the outside. It looks like a bodega crammed with rice and Clorox bleach and Colgate toothpaste. But when you go in, the experience changes dramatically. And I won't reveal the whole thing to you now. You're going to have to experience it for yourself. And I will tell you a little secret scoop. I'm going to give you the address of this store, which again is a store that's hidden in plain sight at 6 Clearway Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02115. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit about Oliver and a little bit of what you can come to expect in this fascinating interview. He is, in addition to being one of the founding members of Bodega, he is also known as DJ Gucci Vuitton. His creative endeavors include fashion design, product design, award-winning art curation, and, of course, musical performance as DJ Gucci Vuitton. Oliver was also the founder and director of the Fourth Wall Project, which was a 3,000-square-foot art gallery in Fenway, which held over 80 exhibitions from 2008 to 2012 and won Best Gallery from Boston Magazine in 2010. Fashion and art events have been a huge part of Oliver's life. DJing on the East Coast in the loft party scene since 2002, his genre-building style has seen him share the stage with a wide range of acts. He was nominated the Best DJ in 2008 by Boston Music Awards and now serves on the nominating committee. And he was also named in the Hyper Beast 100 in 2015 and 16, as well as Size Magazine in Hong Kong's 2008 Global Opinion Leaders list. And I say all that by the way of explaining that 
it's not just a retail background that Oliver brings to Bodega. It's not just a sneaker background. It's not just an apparel background. Oliver is the king at milding and mashing all sorts of industry and collaborations and cross-pollination to create a retail experience that is unlike any other that I've experienced and also to create products that are exciting and rare and exclusive. And we delve into how he does that, how he mixes Kentucky Fried Chicken with Mad Magazine, with hip hop, with NBA basketball to create products that excite and delight and that people trade for thousands and thousands of dollars. The sneakerhead industry is mind-boggling. I had no idea before my interview and my experience with Oliver and Bodega. And we talk about how to identify fashion trends. How can you walk down the street, whether it's your own neighborhood or the bustling streets of Tokyo, and identify current and future fashion trends? He talks about what he thinks some of those trends may be and what they are and what you can expect to see. But he also talks about how the future of retail might not be as dismal as we think if we look at it as a different kind of experience. And they're about to open their second store in Los Angeles, which you know proves that this whole concept of excitement and experience may be the future of retail. They also have a large online presence, and they even look at online experience a little differently than I had ever thought of before. And I think that whether you're listening to this as a retailer or as a product developer, whether it's technology, whether it's service, whatever you're looking to do, the takeaways from this, I think, transcend this particular industry and really have tentacles in a lot of other industries. And I think the idea of looking around and whether you learn something from the insect world and apply that to technology or whether you take something from the food world and apply that to lacrosse, I think this future of cross-pollination and collaboration is a really good takeaway. And I think you're going to be fascinated with Oliver and some of his insights. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Oliver Mack as much as I did. And now I bring you my conversation with Oliver Mack. It's 2006. I'm imagining this. You're hanging out with Jay Gordon and Dan Natola, and you're talking about something, creating a business, bringing all the cool things together in one place, doing something. Can you unpack what that looks like this day that you came up with this concept of Bodega? Yeah, it, uh, it kind of unfurled through a lot of different conversations and a lot of different freelance work. Dan, Jay, and myself were just young creatives in the city doing a ton of freelance work between DJing event production for events that fused art with music and fashion, marketing projects, all sorts of weird things, loft parties. And we realized that for us to be a sustainable business and a crew that could get into the daylight, we needed to create something like Bodega that was a showcase for our creative projects, our design work, and an entryway into collaborating with brands. So we started working with brands on a sales basis, and then as one of the top image accounts in the world, we were able to start creating co-branded projects with them. So describe a loft party. Well, there's artist areas in, and student areas in Boston that you know you could throw parties in and um, in the early days we would be doing like a one night art show in someone's apartment clear out all the furniture set up some turntables and do some fun DJing until the sun came up and that was what the art scene was when we were just in our 20s and we were outsider art graffiti artists vandals and it wasn't a situation where galleries wanted to invite us to show our work or anything so we created our own 
way of doing galleries. Did you ever want to be part of the mainstream gallery scene? We ended up running our own art gallery in 2008 to 2014, and we won Best Gallery by Boston Magazine, I think in 2010 and 2011 from the Weekly Dig. But that all kind of just came about really organically, and we never really thought we would be part of any mainstream or establishment. We've always been kind of an outlier. Shout out to Gladwell. Well, okay, so the deal of doing this on your own, grassroots, whatever, are there things that you thought would work that you were surprised didn't work? Yeah, we thought more artist-driven lines would be more of the focus, but that is not congruent to specifically design and fashion design. So originally we kind of thought it would be half gallery, half retail, but it's gone full force into just straight fashion. And, you know, sometimes we'll have an artist-driven collection. There's a resurgence of that with the last couple of years of DIY artist t-shirt lines and the zine world, but um, it's not really the main focus of what we do here, which we thought was going to be the key element for how we bought for the store. What's an example of one of your more successful collaborations where you brought the fashion world and the art world together in a way that exceeded your expectations? For our 10-year anniversary, we, we sent out all these denim Stussy jackets to about 16 artists around the world that we had worked with from at some point, and uh, we threw a party and put together a zine, and I thought that was a really great celebration because it kind of encapsulated and summarized a decade of just working in art and culture and getting that as a method of spreading individual ideas of artists. So you've said that Bodega's core DNA is always about the creativity of fashion through the lens of the street. If you could choose three places to go to discover trends, where would you go? So any specific fairs, events, showrooms, or other brick and mortars? Just be Tokyo, Paris, and um, New York. And when you, okay, so you land in Tokyo. What do you do? Are you scanning the streets? Are you going to specific regions? Are you checking out specific galleries? Yeah, I would go to just walk around Shibuya and Harajuku and try to get booked to DJ somewhere and check out some nightlife that way and then run into random uh, folks that you end up with, explore what their view of the world is. So if someone lands in Tokyo and they want to understand how can I identify trends, just a regular person who might not have connections with DJing, whatever, what can they do just walking down the street to capture trends? Is there a technique that you can offer? Is it just something you either have or you don't have? I think it's more than just a single experience. You're usually forecasting trends from conversations, from attending trade shows, from that street view, and then uh, what media you take in as well. So I think intuitively it's just part of that full process. Do you think that the way that you do this will be the same now as when you're 50 years old? I think technology has absolutely changed how we have done things from 2006 till now. So there's absolutely no way that it would remain entirely the same. But there's some elements that are... Yeah, there's some elements as far as the human interaction, creativity, that will stay the same, but the actual steps to get from A to Z 
probably going to change a bit. And the technology that has had the biggest impact on what you guys have done at Bodega is what? Distributed cloud-based computing. Having more than two people working on our back end at one point, at one time, has been very helpful. Not having to run our own servers has freed up a lot of uh, partner time to be able to do business development and access to databases, products, uh, the ability to update our backends either through, you know, back of house buying office or um, the receiving end is kind of just allowed us to be able to expand and empower our manager class underneath us. Describe Bodega for people who've never been here and the elements of scarcity and the element of surprise and for the purposes of this, the element of curiosity. It's a living, evolving art installation focused around the art of hunting for interesting products sourced from around the globe that are usually limited edition and usually have a ton of press behind it, but you can't find it on shelves anywhere. It just evaporates as soon as it's released. So we were able to physically manifest the the feeling of looking for something and discovering it just through what we built, which is a fully hidden, non-advertised space which uh, collects fashion from around the world and designed with art installations. How do you keep that ethos going online? You can. It's totally two separate ideas. But you can take part of your aesthetic and use that for what the skin of the site is. But user interface and all that stuff has to be kind of standardized to what you know someone using a website is used to. There are certain things that we will launch further down the road which would be hidden within the site, and there might be things already hidden on the site right now that you could look for that you might already find. Oh, that's a good teaser. All right, many brick-and-mortar retailers are floundering and failing, and experts are talking about the death of retail. What advice would you offer your 30-year-old self today if you were starting in a new retail venture? And follow-on question is, is this the same advice that you would give to a struggling brick-and-mortar store now? I would say don't do it. It's, uh, <laughs> it's too much work, and it's a pain in the ass. That's the advice I'd tell someone who's 30. Someone who's 25, when we opened, I was 26, like, so I guess we were starting at 25. I would also say don't do it. And if that person doesn't listen and still wants to do it, then they're probably right to be an entrepreneur. You have to be willing to sacrifice your entire self your personal relationships, your financial uh, stability, your mental integrity for the good of something bigger than just yourself. And it's, it's not guaranteed to succeed. As you mentioned, retail is getting worse and worse as a industry in terms of the number of successes. The big houses are all folding year after year. And it's because, well, they're competing with outdated business model against a Goliath. And that's not how you're going to be able to win in the price war. We're able to grow and sustain ourselves because we specialize in things that Amazon does not carry. And we present it in a way that even the fashion houses that we do work with are slow to adapt to. So presentation, a human connection, offering exclusive product and creating product and experiences and you know, just creating and contributing to counterculture, I think, is a really big aspect of how we differentiate and why people rep us. 
Did I hear rumor that you are opening in L.A. somewhere in a gritty district, yeah. secret, hidden, unknown? Correct. It's, it looks like a scene from Repo Man where it's like uh, <laughs> mutants, aliens, tent cities, an art gallery, a bougie restaurant, and all of a sudden there's us and then probably an auto yard right next to it. It feels like the apocalypse. It's great. We love it. And is it open yet? We're still in construction phase. I think Dan just went out there to look at some more of the design. But um, yeah, it'll be like the evolution of what we do here. We're really impressed by other industry leaders in this market, such as Colette and Dover Street. And we want to... Colette and Dover Street. Uh, Tell me about them. Colette's this legendary, I think, four-story lifestyle shop that's in Paris. And it's, it's kind of one of the pioneers of what we do. It's part department store, but also like lifestyle store. So it's got the full everything. And it has incredible art installations and presentations from brands that range from, you know, runway to street. And then uh, Dover Street is, it's kind of like the market leader for your avant-garde department store. So each floor has a different brand presentation. Is it driven by the brands themselves? Are they dictating like they used to dictate if you're buying some kind of sportswear line, they dictate how that's going to look? Or is Dover Street in this example dictating how they're going to present the brands? Who's holding the power in? I think it's a collaborative effort for Dover Street because they're they're very closely related, if not owned by Comme des Garçons. So, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And then Coletta, I'm not sure how that works out, but their presentations are actually are incredible. And what they've done in terms of setting a standard for presentation and is absolutely incredible. There are certain tiers for Nike, for Adidas, and it's a rare tier. Can you talk about what those tiers are and what that provides to Bodega and the few rare stores that achieve those tiers? What is it, tier one for Nike and maybe Adidas Consortium? Can you, yeah, can you um, talk a little bit about that? So how do you have a, a brand be able to sell to someone like Champs? but also have space in a quote-unquote exclusive store? Well, the answer is you you make different product for different doors, and you make it in different quantities. And, uh, yeah, so Consortium is a program by Adidas that focuses on retail partners as collaborators, and Reebok has a similar program, Asics, Converse, First String, Nike. Everyone tiers it out. Nike's probably the most tiered out, like, Urban stores will have a certain designation, access to certain product, and then mall stores will have a totally different allotment of things. So is the Nike Tier 1 kind of the creme de la creme of the, or does it depend on what you're interested in carrying? That top tier is... Tier 0. It's, it was called Tier Zero, but I'm not sure what it's called right now. Actually, Jay would know right now. I'm, I'm not in the Nike meetings as much as I should be. But yeah, those, um, there's a very limited amount of partners right now. We get seconds on dessert if we want, yeah. Oh, nice. We have access to the best product and the, the tastiest treats as a reward and as trust that we're able to present it at the, at the level that they need it to be. The back of our house is like, it's pretty large because we, we spend a lot of our time actually creating editorial photo shoots, styled photo shoots in different locations. We're conceptual. We're doing pretty much everything that... A, ad agency would do for our partner brands. How do you do that? I mean, you're trying to be the best kept secret, or you are one of the best kept secrets, and yet you're doing all this marketing to show these Limited. large brands. Yeah. How, do you, how do you balance that? Well, we do that by making sure that 
the content we create is it's from us and it's from our community. It focuses a lot on, we use a lot of artists in our, as our models. We use a lot of musicians and people from our community. So it's good if something underground gets more exposure as long as the core of it and the soul and the quality doesn't change. Like skateboarding was like an underground movement and now it's taken over the world, but it's still underground and still counterculture because of its core values. So are there always new hidden elements as people discover elements? So in your example of skateboarding, what becomes kind of mainstream, is there a rush or a concerted effort to then create something kind of Easter eggs within the skating world? Yeah, I think there's always the wider that economy becomes, the more players can enter. Yeah, I mean, there's no barrier to entry for you starting your own skateboard team or company or brand anymore. And same with our segment of fashion. That's the energy of why the, the market's still interesting and it keeps on changing because younger uh, generation can be involved. It's like punk rock. It's like the birth of hip hop. It created a whole ecosystem that people can feed themselves and their families off of just doing what they think is right and what they think is in incredible. So describe a sneakerhead, because I was reading and trying to understand and kind of reaching back into my old retail roots about what I was, the three kind of categories of shoes, which are the retro repackaged in beautiful kinds of sacred ways, like you would a baseball trading card and maybe unique collaborations that are limited or maybe recreations of something. Describe what the different trends are with this and, and the role of a sneakerhead in this whole ecosystem. Sneakerhead is a pretty interesting term because it really encapsulates everybody who is interested in sneakers, but it kind of implies a level of fanaticism. Uh, to the level of obsession and possibly unhealthy habits. The great thing about what you have as a consumer who's interested in sneakers right now is there's such a wide array of offerings at all times. And there's different levels you get into. There's the, the retro runners. And retro styling in general is always a concurrent theme in American sportswear. So we're always mining about 20 years previous till now. So if you want to know what the trend is coming up, just take this year, subtract 20, and look at what was hot 20 years ago. Pattern-wise, silhouettes, materials, and then what the core silhouettes of the footwear were at that time. And then you have new ideas being brought in, futurism, a lot of things that... Uh, What's futurism? What does that look like in, a, in uh, footwear? Well, it's kind of like what RAF is doing with Adidas or Y3. And then any, anything that incorporates your, your new construction or new material access in, into a, a, a new form. So a lot of things that you see Yoji Yamamoto creating are very futuristic and look like they belong in Blade Runner. Yoji's a shoe designer? Yeah, he has a subline called Y3 for Adidas. Okay. And then what Raf's doing and then what Balenciaga's doing, it's just like these exaggerated shapes and forms that like people were laughing at. Like It's like sketchers almost. Like, But uh, it's fashionable because they were able to do it with the right balance, just the right amount of je ne sais quoi. 
I mean, there's all sorts of uh, other footwear movements. You got uh, collab stuff with skate brands, artists, graffiti artists, fashion brands. It's so wide that, again, it's like there's no way to encapsulate that term. It's, it's good to have an umbrella term for all those people who are interested in it, but it breaks down to pretty much every use sub-demographic you could think of. What's the most successful collaboration that you guys have ever done? And can you describe how that transpired? What does that look like if you're peeking behind the curtain watching this whole collaboration from start to finish? What can you? We did something in 2009 with Mad Magazine. And I thought that was pretty interesting because it was Spy versus Spy was the... I love that. was like the weird hook behind it. And it had a hidden message... It had a, like a, in the tongue, there was a hidden Morse code message in a tiny manila envelope that was top secret. And then the perforations on the toe box were also Morse code spelling out a message to the wearer. And then the manila envelope message led to a phone number. The phone number, we created a scrambled message that led to a P.O. box. A P.O. box collected entries of whoever could scramble that and then they were able to we picked winners to win a super rare gray spy pair so it was like this whole cat and mouse weird alternate reality game that we had created just for people who were paying attention for example how many shoes did you how many were out there and where are they now do you think i don't think we did more than 400 of them, maybe 500, maybe 600. I don't know. That was with Puma. And I know that Puff Daddy bought a pair. That was cool. Back when he was Puff Daddy. Is I he think t- it was P. Diddy at that moment or just Puff. It's hard to know. Yeah, he's like, he's he's got to reinvent himself, you know, every every album, just like Madonna did. All right, so the whole purpose of this podcast is for the relentlessly curious and particularly trying to extract insights and wisdom, but using this lens of curiosity. So what role would you say curiosity has played in your life personally and potentially as a strategy for business? For the first five years of existence before we even had a functioning website, Curiosity is what brought people to our doorstep every day as something fully hidden and not advertised. It was based on this urban myth that there was a secret place that you could find, and it was it was worth it if you went there. So that was Curiosity is entirely what our marketing plan was until we opened our website, really. The original website had just like a looping video art piece that I made that had this really strange audio that people were just watching for like an hour to try to figure out what was going on. And then a bunch of like really quick flashing photography, something that you'd probably see out of Clockwork Orange because I think it was built in flash. Uh, No one could like slow it down and try to actually like capture the, the hidden weirdness in it. So yeah, again, curiosity gave us the ability to, uh, travel around the world and open up a shop in L.A. and build jobs for our staff, put food on the table, and uh, pay our bills on time. What about as a kid? Describe yourself as a kid. Watched a lot of TV. That was about it. What did you watch? (laughs) A-team, exercise videos. uh, What exercise videos? I don't even remember. (laughs) 
the my head. Do you still here. watch exercise videos? No, I run. Uh, I, oh. I I was running uh, cross country back then and track, and uh, playing basketball. And then high school, I, I played in a bunch of bands, and we set up a bunch of DIY shows at uh, VFW halls and like book shows, and started playing in the city when I was probably a sophomore. Instrument, DJ, voice, what? Well, I'm a DJ uh, in the city for the past 15 years, and I'm actually one of the last dudes who still does vinyl. Yeah, it's pretty interesting because like you'll see people come up, and it's the first time they've ever seen it. And it's, first time they've ever seen vinyl. Yeah, for a lot of people, um, well, because it's such an uncommon thing for a club DJ to use, everyone's on laptop now, that it's like almost a historical reenactment to a certain point. I should be wearing like a Ben Franklin wig. Yeah, it makes you feel old. Nah, it doesn't make me feel old. Me, playing music makes maybe me it feel should. alive. Ma- yeah. uh, maybe it should, Oliver. <laughs> nah, possibly, I don't know. It's having a reverse effect on me because we're usually playing for uh, the people who go out clubbing are always the same age they're young and people i play with are young so it's like i guess that's how i why don't old people do that why don't they do i mean there's uh my friend my homies run this uh 45s only soul night that's like the oldest dj is like 53 i think that's pretty old i I need to know about this yeah i mean there's like this crazy amount of djs that are still it's like the only um art form that you're competing with the people who created the whole art yeah that's a good point yeah it's like you're competing cool. with for gigs by the guy who designed a crossfader you know it's insane and it keeps on evolving and it keeps on getting bigger and it's just creativity what do you think would be the are going to be the holy grail products of the near future the next big really big drop that everyone's going to be sleeping on the sidewalk jumping off roofs for is probably the 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 10 by uh, Nike and Virgil Abloh, Off-White. The next Yeezy releases are always going to be Energy. Some apparel pieces from, I think, I feel like Sasquatch Fabrics is the next one to come up as far as, like, interesting apparel. What do Uh, they do that's interesting? It's a lot of silhouettes, a a lot of different ideas and proportion. It's nice that it's all made in Japan and you can't find it anywhere, really. What's the craziest customer you've ever had? Larry David from Curb Your Enthusiasm and Seinfeld. I just love because David. he's not crazy, it's just I think uh, everyone else was like just so taken back that the energy in the room turned everybody into a nebbish Jewish man immediately. <laughs> and it was like everyone was just awkwardly stammering in his greatness and it was amazing. It was cool that we got to meet Robin Williams through our shop, you know, have a relationship with him because he was buying a lot of product from us. What was his thing? What did he like? Did he, he have a special... He loved an acronym of that German brand by Arlson. Yeah, he, he used to rock a lot of Bape, too. But we geeked out when we, we sent the package out to Eric Clapton because Clapton is God when it comes to guitar. Interesting to me, Dougie Fresh. Oh, Dougie we had Fresh. Prince Paul, who invented the rap skit, DJ a, a joint with us. Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's an interesting cross section of like a lot of people who are pop culture icons, people who make things, and you know, it's it keeps on rolling. You know. What about the the addi- most addicted sneakerhead, crazy kind of fight for product story? Anything like that? I mean, I think I've seen people yeah, line gets, way up. It gets up. crazy hood uh, for lineups, for cues. That's why we don't even do them anymore. We do raffles because it's just like... Oh, you do? T- how does that yeah. work? 
Well, you come in a couple of days ahead, and then um, you know you sign up your info on the app, and then we let you know if you won. We pulled it. We pull it from a this randomizer called Rafflecopter. You know, we're in a neighborhood, and it's not a really nice thing if you wake up in the morning on our street and there's trash everywhere and people get into a fight or trying to rob someone over a pair of sneakers. And that's happened before? Yeah, it's a, it's really unfortunate because there's so much money at stake with certain things and, you know, people will act the fool to make a couple couple Gs. So they come in, you can there's an app that they can download and they get their name on it or how does that work for someone who is uh, interested in We usually just publish the, a URL and then print it out and you got to come in and enter it into your little smartphone and then fill it out. So we we kind of control the crowd that way. We're doing a actually another really hyped up release that we're part of. They're, they're relaunching the Polo Stadium collection, which is like the most iconic retro American sportswear that came out of the 90s. I'm that, trying to think what that would have been from from Polo though. Yeah. Yeah, Ralph Lauren Polo. Yeah, it's the, it's like the holy grail of uh, a lot of vintage collectors. God, I shouldn't. There's going to be like there's going to be some insane lines up for that. That's probably one of them, the most coveted apparel releases we'll have. Is there footwear with that? I can't think of anything. No. It seems like apparel, right? No, their footwear is licensed, so it's like it's not. It doesn't have that same design DNA. Yeah. It's really widely released. I could go digging in my <clears throat> the bowels of my closet for pulling out some of that stuff. I would look so if you have so it, fresh. If you have it, it's like there's some serious uh, style behind it, and there's a serious like subculture that rivals like chavs and um, soccer hooligans, but it's like a very uh, East Coast thing. Oh, interesting. All right, so I have this thing called QCQs. These are quick, curious questions that I want to make sure we wrap up getting some insight into you. What has been your favorite under $100 purchase in the last 12 months? I play a lot of vinyl, so I got a whole bunch of records from this dealer out of UK. So a, a bunch of like British-only pressings of 45s that were mostly reggae, like Johnny Osborne, Alfie and Donna. That stuff never came out in the States. So it's uh, 45s are like a lifesaver because they don't weigh very much, so you could bring a ton of them and uh, you could get all your reggae and dance What's the all. name of the place that from... Whom you I, know, just a, you he, I think he was a collector out of Essex. I, I found him off Discogs. But, uh, Discogs? Yeah, it's, that's kind of like a site where you list all your vinyl, and if you're trading and selling, that's where you can find almost anything. Uh, it's, it's, I think a lot of like real beat diggers hate it and love it because I, you get access to everything around the world. And why do they hate it? Because it's addictive? Because everyone has access oh, to everything. Oh, because the scarcity yeah, goes away. Yeah, you're not like, yeah, the thing that you found in Poughkeepsie, digging in like some funky defunct Jamaican store is like anybody could find it if it's if it's pressed. And you describe Bodega as a hunt for your grail products. What are your top five personal grail products right now? I would also describe it as like this intersection of cultures just based on shared in uh, shared love of like the counterculture that inspires sneaker Sneakerheads, sneakers being you know relevant whatsoever, but yeah, that's a good way to call it up. Top five, probably the bike that I had that was uh, 
it was all Austrian frame and it got stolen recently. I missed that thing and I hope whoever's riding it gets hit by a truck. <laughs> and the U-lock that was attached to it, I'll miss that. But uh, my new bike would be number three. I have a Swobo that's internal three speed and I use it to ride everywhere because... It's a Swobo? Yeah, it's the name of the bike mm-hmm. company. That's cool. It doesn't have the same vibe because it wasn't built just for me. And then... I would say Technics 1200s, turntables, because they don't make them. Those, the ones that they built in the 70s still function as well as they did before. The only thing I do outside of work is just music, so guitar, my guitar as well. What do you play? I play acoustic and ukulele as well, but I think guitar is more interesting. play six strings. As an opinion leader, and last one, we'll just wrap up. I'm just curious, what is something that you believe that most people think is crazy? It's strange because the opinion leader thing is really weird for me to think about because that's something that other people tell you you are. Right. And you would never say that about yourself, such as being an asshole. (laughs) Other people will tell you if you're being an asshole, but you probably don't want to say that. But I mean, if other people are saying it, I'm probably an asshole or an opinion leader. What are people, what's kind of crazy? Cryptocurrency is like probably going to be our future. A lot of people think it's like a pyramid scam, but everything I've researched about it is entirely solid. Well, if you invested in it as late as, I don't know, two months ago, you're up like fivefold. For Bitcoin? Bitcoin and Ethereum and the forks of those, yeah. Everything's kind of Bitcoin when you really think about it. Would you ever create some product that you can only buy with Bitcoin well, we wanted cryptocurrency? To, we wanted to do a, a release on the dark web, actually, and run a Tor server. And you could only buy the product just like you have to download Tor and run like a node off of it. But it seems so weird and perverse that we haven't done it yet. But everyone I told about it was like, they were pretty geeked because, um, you know, forcing people to like experience that weird uh, dark well, it could be dark or it could be light. It's just another part of the web that is not indexed. But uh, getting people to experience that is pretty weird. What was that question? I don't even know why I went no, into you, that. No, you, 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 what was, I said, what was something that you believe that most people think is crazy? Oh, okay, yeah. I think most people think, I don't know, but fortune just, everyone's, a lot of uh, people are coming around to that, I think. You know, Rush is uh, regulating that as a, as a market asset. Fortune just published a cover story about it, so maybe that's not crazy anymore. But everyone, it might not be, but I think the idea of getting people to experience other you know, the dark web or other parts or different ways of purchasing is, but put it this way, I haven't heard Macy's talking about it. Yeah, that's well, that's like <laughs> I guess that's where we're agile is like people who are just scanning culture and just like figuring about like exploring our strange interests. Fantastic. I love this. This is great. I really appreciate your spending time. I love your store. I'm excited to try to figure out where this LA store is. Will it be as hard to figure out as this one? Is that part nah, of... We, uh, through the internet, you could find everything. So L- I think LA Times already mentioned it in an article. Well, they mentioned kind Weekly. of where the area, but they didn't say where it's going to be or how you'll spot it or... Oh, how damn. You'll... 
Well, they better do a better job of journalism in that case because they're messing up. <laughs> they could have had her whole address in there if they. Well, if at they least just, I didn't find it. Maybe I didn't delve. Maybe I didn't delve deep enough into gotta, the dark yeah. web of the LA Times. Oh, you can just text me, whatever. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's fantastic. Like, it's out there. It's gonna. It's on our website. I'm pretty sure. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. That's pretty. That's pretty yeah. obvious. So um, now that means that there's. If you're telling where, people where it is, that means there's going to be a whole element of surprise that you yeah. are not talking about. I'm assuming. Yeah, but we found that uh, you know there's the digital experience and that's part of your life, but uh, the real you know what you experience in the real world is a totally different thing. And um, you know people could tell you what our shop layout is and what it's like to walk through, but when you get there. People are overwhelmed, and you see this light of illumination come across their face, and you know, their imagination is lit when they experience our our space and what how we present things. So, even if you you know what LA is like and what it's about and where it is, you got to come there and check it out to see it. Perfect. Well, you'll hopefully you'll still always be loyal to Boston. Well, yeah. I mean, that's I think that's one of the core traits of East Coast people. We're loyal to a fault, but. That doesn't mean we can't skateboard down Venice and do weird things in uh, Spain. And It's great to be based out of here, but uh, to really grow something so that our team can all put their kids through college, we got to expand. we got to replicate the successes that we have. Well, perfect. I really appreciate talking to you, and I'm excited to see what happens with the next iteration of Bodega and all that you're doing. Thanks so much, Oliver. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Oliver Mack is one of the three founding members of Bodega. You can find out more about Bodega and Oliver at shopbodegastore.com. That's S-H-O-P dot B-D-G-A-S-T-O-R-E dot com. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a quick question and a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes and all resources mentioned at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. And the question, would you enjoy joining the ranks of curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers? If so, you are invited to join the tribe of the curious. You'll receive Quick Curiosity Monday. This short weekly email is curiosity lube for your brain. It consists of ideas I'm pondering, curiosities the tribe has shared, and things that I'm enjoying that I suspect you might too. Just go to appliedcuriositylab.com to join, or you can probably just pick your favorite search engine and type in Tribe of the Curious. And let's connect online at Becky Saltzman on Twitter and on Facebook at Applied Curiosity Lab. Finally, in order to avoid missing insights from outside the boundaries of ordinary, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the other places podcasts hide and wait to be discovered. In the meantime, elevate curiosity. Curiosity.